Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer, and we will open our Bibles to the book of Jude. Father in heaven, thank you again and again and again for the precious time to come before your word and know that as we do, we are indeed coming before your word, which effectually works in the lives of those who believe. Cause us to be nourished with it, Lord, to be strengthened by it, that we may live to the praise of the glory of Christ. As we are, through your work of the Holy Spirit, using your word, conformed to his image. Thank you. Please, Lord, bless us this day with its truth. To the praise of your goodness and glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back with me to the book of Jude, if you have not yet gone there. And look down to the text before us this morning. We will... Read verses 21 through 23. Actually, let's back up to verse 20. Jude, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. As we come to our text this morning, you'll recall that Jude in verses 20 and 21 looked at focusing on what the believer is to do in confronting or contending for the faith with regard to himself or to herself. We are to be about building ourselves up in our most holy faith. That is, constructing ourselves on the foundation of the Word of God. That's critical in our lives as we contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. If you don't know what faith is, if you don't know the foundation of faith, how are you going to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So we ourselves must be building ourselves up in our most holy faith. He went on to speak about and command that we are to, um, as the text says, praying in the Holy Spirit. We are to be praying, conversing with God in the Holy Spirit. That is, our prayers are to be in line with the living Word of God. We are to be about keeping ourselves in the love of God. That is, preserving ourselves, knowing that God loves His people, that He has us, that we are with Him and He is with us. Paul puts it this way as he speaks in the context of Romans 8 regarding the love of God. If God be for us, then who can be against us? that God has poured out that amazing sovereign love on His people, and He has reconciled them to Himself. You know, whenever you're fighting a battle, whatever that battle may be, it is always of great comfort and encouragement in the midst of that battle to know that the King of kings is for you, that He is for you, that He is with you. 
that the greatest blessing that you could receive from Him, His love and His mercy and His grace, has been poured out on His people. That's, that preserves us as we contend earnestly for the faith. And then, as He went on to say, we waiting anxiously, that is confidently expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. We're looking forward to the return of Christ. And then He turned to confronting others, those who are confused, those who are corrupted, those who are confounded by the false teaching of those that he has been speaking of in this context. And that's where we're coming to today. And you'll recall that we looked at there are three characteristics of the people in this group. There are those who are doubting. There are others who are in the midst of trial because of their uh, failure to follow God's Word. And then there are those that are caught up in uh, the sins that accompany uh, error, the error or the uh, condition of not following truth. And we'll look more at that as we move on this morning. And then you'll recall last week we, we kind of looked at a parenthetical uh, condition that's, that's implied strongly in this text that refers to the progression of, of false doctrine as it's allowed to linger in our own lives. You remember as we started last week, we actually went over to the book of Galatians and we, we looked at the objective of false doctrine there. And the objective of false doctrine is, in essence, to alienate us from God. Now, those who are Christians can never be lost. But what false doctrine will do, it will confuse you. It will upset your faith. It will cause you to become shipwrecked if you get sidetracked with it. And as it does that, it will alienate you not in your position, but in your practical walk from the Lord. Always, God's people who are saved will always be saved. They will always be His children. Nothing, absolutely nothing can change that. But Satan can, through the use of false teaching, through the doctrine of demons, which all false teaching is, in essence, doctrines of devils, all falsehood comes from the father of lies. According to John chapter 8, verse 44, Satan is the father of lies. And he communicates his, his work through false doctrine. And that will upset the faith of some. And so we know that false doctrine, it's... Its objective is to alienate us from God, and that's what it does. It alienates us, as we went through Galatians last week, from the persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It, op it, it operates in our lives and against our lives to, to alienate us from the principles of grace, faith, and truth, and liberty, and all of those precious blessings associated with the grace, or in, in essence, the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ. And it also operates and functions with the objective of alienating us from the people of God. 
You remember the question Paul asked the churches at Galatia. Have I become your enemy because I'm teaching you the truth? Have I become your enemy because I'm teaching you the truth? And then even there in the churches of Galatia, they were biting one another and devouring one another. Metaphorically speaking, they were in constant contention as the doctrines that were false had appealed to the flesh. And as the flesh was fed, they turned on one another like mad dogs. That's what false doctrine does. That's its objective. But now whenever we're here at Jude, as we mentioned last week, and spoke of, we see its progression. It starts by, by planting a seed of doubt. And that seed of doubt is antithetical to God's Word. It's antithetical to faith in particular. And next, after it plants a seed of doubt and a person begins to doubt God's Word, they start changing course. They start changing course. Notice the progression. Doubt the truth. Start looking at the false doctrine and believing that doctrine. And it is inevitable that you will turn from the course of truth, from the compass, from the light, and into darkness. From the narrow path to the, draw, to the broad path. There are so many things that have its appeal whenever it comes to false doctrine. And as we saw, it is inevitably appealing to the flesh. In Jude, we looked at these individuals who's, uh, who were promoting the falsehood. Take a look at the text with me. We'll see if you uh, the same thing this morning quickly. Look down to verse 16. These people that are purveyors of false doctrine, he says, are grumblers, finding fault, following their own lusts. Notice that. They follow their own lusts. They're not following the Holy Spirit based on the truth or the truth of the Word of God as the Holy Spirit leads them. Instead, they are in pursuit of their own self-satisfaction, their own lusts. Look down to verse 18 that they were saying to you in the last days, that is, the apostles were saying to you in the last days, there will be mockers, and notice this, following after their own ungodly lusts. These individuals, purveyors of false doctrine, communicate from their lusts, and they appeal to the flesh of others. And as the Bible in the book of Hebrews warns us, there is pleasure in sin for a season. Believers, that's one of the reasons why God throughout His Word, and especially in the New Testament, exhorts believers to make sure they are disciplined in their minds. You see, living the Christian life is not about what you feel. It's not about our feelings. It's not about our emotions. It is first and foremost about truth and what God says in our minds. And we digest that truth first with our minds. About what God not says in our minds, but says in His Word. And then we digest that truth in our minds and with our minds. As Paul said, as he wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that he takes every thought 
captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And the idea of that word captive there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is he says, I am holding every thought at spear point. In other words, we've got every thought at spear point. We are looking at it ready to either accept it as God's truth, as it is in line with this truth, or to kill it, to stop it. The Bible in the book of Colossians chapter 3 exhorts us to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. Again, it's not about how we feel in the Christian life. It is first and foremost about what we think, what we think with regard to God's Word, His truth. Biblical faith does not negate the mind. It doesn't negate the use of our mind. There are so many people that want to accept Disney's philosophy in life. Follow your heart. Follow your feelings. And you keep that up long enough, and you're going to end up in some bad places and some bad conditions. The Bible in the book of Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all else. Who can know it? Christians, you can't even discern the depths of the wickedness that exists within our hearts. It's impossible. We can't plumb that. We know that it's filled with depravity, and we are to take our lives and to base them on the Word of God. So important for us. So let's come back to our text now this morning. And notice verse 22. And he says, And have mercy on some who are doubting. And have mercy on some who are doubting. As we began to look at the course of action that we are to take, he tells us we are to have mercy on some who are doubting. It's very important that we acknowledge that Jude is taking, as we look at addressing these individuals, and he says and exhorts those who are first recipients of mercy to be those who are to have mercy. Back up in the text with me for a moment. Look at verse 2. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Look to verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously, what? For the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. God has had mercy on His people. We are the recipients of mercy. In particular, we could acknowledge, and there are multiple aspects of the mercy of God, and, uh, but that we've already received, and there are aspects of the mercy of God that are yet to come for Christians. For instance, one aspect of God's mercy is that He has released us from the penalty of our sins. And what a great blessing that is to us. He's released us through Jesus Christ and Christ's death on the cross from the penalty of our sins. That is, from that lake of fire. 
to which all individuals who do not know Christ but are yet in their sin will be thrust into that lake that burns forever and ever. That's the penalty of sin, the wrath of God being poured out on people. Christ has, in His mercy, released us from that. And what a blessing that has been. Furthermore, He's also released us from the power of sin. According to Romans chapter 6, we are no longer those who are Christians under the dominion of sin. Christians have been set free from sin's power. What a praise that is. In other words, prior to salvation, Christians walked under their sin. It had dominion over them. They were held captive by it. The Bible speaks of that clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. God, through Christ, has released us from that dominion. We've been set free, as Galatians speaks of. We have spiritual liberty. Praise the Lord. We've also been delivered from, through God's mercy, the, the persuasive characteristic of sin. What is that? Hebrews chapter 3 speaks of the, the deception of sin. For the first time, a person who is a Christian has the awareness that they now can truly see sin for what it is. It's vileness. It's, it's predatorial nature. It's enmity against God. The cover of sin is pulled back, and they are able to see it for what it is. We don't see the full depths of it, especially of our own sin. But as we grow in holiness, we see it the more. And what a praise, even as verse 21 speaks, God's mercy that comes to us in Jesus Christ will come further at His coming for us. And finally there, an aspect of God's mercy is we will be delivered because of His mercy from the very presence of sin. Something that even now is almost incomprehensible to us. But it's coming. It's coming. And by faith we know we'll experience. So, Jude says to those who have experienced mercy, we are to have mercy on others. He mentions that in verse 22 and jump down to verse 23 again. And he says there in the middle of the verse after the second group of people, and on some have mercy. Mercy actually, I believe, flows through all of these. It's not that the second group at the beginning of verse 23, save others snatching them out of the fire, is not that you do not have mercy on them. Certainly not. The idea of snatching them out of the fire is an act of mercy. We'll see that as we look further in this text. But mercy is to be a characteristic of God's people. Because God delights in mercy. According to Micah chapter 7, verse 18, He delights in mercy. 
And what God delights in, God's people should delight in. He requires those on whom he has mercy to be merciful. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. So then we could say that mercy itself requires mercy. Mercy itself requires mercy. Look in your New Testament with me to the book of Matthew. And there to chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18. And down in the text to verse 33, Matthew 18, 33. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Mercy requires mercy. If we are recipients of mercy, mercy in which God delights, mercy in which He is pleased, it only stands to reason that we should express and convey mercy to others. The Bible conveys in a context that those who show no mercy that they do not know God. Look at Romans with me for a moment. Chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Move down in the text to verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and look at this last one there, unmerciful. In the context, he's speaking about those who are in opposition to God, and he says of them that they are unmerciful. They will be judged according to the book of James, chapter 2, 13, and Luke 16. They will be judged without mercy. They will be judged without mercy. So whenever Jude gives this exhortation here in Jude and says on some have mercy who doubt, that exhortation is not falling on deaf ears. It comes to the ears of those who have themselves received the mercy of God, who know the need of that experience and are quick to communicate mercy to others. The exhortation he gives does not fall then on those who are not receptive to it. But having experienced the mercy themselves, they hear that exhortation and they proceed in a course of action showing mercy. And listen, they are blessed and they will be assured of further mercy. Look in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? 
Mercy, mercy, mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So, how do we define this mercy? In his work, Synonyms of the New Testament, theologian Richard Trench pointed out that God's grace deals with man's guilt through the forgiveness of sin, while God's mercy deals with man's misery caused by sin, as his mercy provides relief of man's misery. So an aspect of mercy is relief. Relief. You see, whenever God delivered you and me, Christian, from sin, and thus from its penalty, there was relief. There was relief. There was relief from the wrath of God. Whenever He delivered us from sin's dominions, from its power, there is relief. Whenever He delivers us from sin's persuasion, whenever you can see the truth of it, that it is deceitful, there is with that a relief from the misery of walking under its deception. What a blessing. What a praise. Listen, there is relief in the midst of repentance of sin for the Christian today, in the, in, the, in, in the sense of their sorrow over sin and their own sin, to know that God one day will separate them from the very presence of sin. There's relief there. What a praise and blessing that is. So let's look at this text. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Have mercy on some who are doubting. This first directive in the course of action that the believer is to undergo or to take concerning those who are under the influence of false doctrine is that of, as he said here, having mercy on them. Expressing mercy to them. This Greek word translated here uh, doubt is, or doubting, is the same word that was used back up in verse 9 and translated there, disputed. The idea is that these individuals are having difficulty with regard to having heard the false doctrine. Now they're questioning God's word. Is his word true? Is what is said here true? Or is this new teaching what is true? And they are actually in the place of disputing even God's word itself. This is not, not necessarily testing it, but this is doubting the validity of the sound doctrine. They're almost caught between two. And whenever you doubt something, you know and are aware of it. It rocks the foundation upon which you're standing. It brings to your mind uncertainty. 
and you begin to question what is clear from God's Word. The Bible in James chapter 1 exhorts us in verse 5, if anyone uh, doubts, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and does not hold back. He gives wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and he does not upbraid, the, another version said. He doesn't hold it back, but he gives that wisdom. And that wisdom gives us direction in there, in James, in the midst of trial. Doubting. As a matter of fact, doubt is a sin. Go with me to Romans chapter 14 for a moment. Romans chapter 14, move down in the text to the last verse of the chapter, verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Doubting God's Word is a sin. God's Word is absolute truth. Now, there may be situations where you want to make sure you understand the Word of God clearly, and that's just fine. We should pursue that. We are called to study the Word of God. But here we are dealing with individuals that have gone beyond that. In the light of the clear teaching of His truth, for some reason or another, whatever it may be, they begin to question it, and usually what it is is the strong appeal to the flesh. And Jude says here, have mercy on them. How do we do that? That doesn't mean, by the way, to be patient with them in the sense of allowing for the doubt to continue to be there. Not at all. The idea in all of this text is not to allow them to continue in it. Not to tolerate it. But in the context is to be against it and to address it. So what would it mean here? Mercy is to be extended here in the sense of patient communication of God's truth to them. Consistently teaching them and demonstrating to them through the Word of God, God's truth teaching them over and over and over again and causing them to uh, have before them a clear picture of God's truth. You cannot, Christians, we cannot give anyone faith. That's impossible. That comes from God alone. That's His work. He gives a person the faith. What you and I do, we come along with the Word of God and we communicate to the believer His truth. And thus, that is the foundation of their faith. You give them the solid Word of God and that sures up their standing, their, um, their position. You know, they are their, their practical walk. So how is it then that we do that? We communicate God's truth to them. 
That's why the church is the pillar and support of the truth. We are to consistently be focusing on and creating an environment within God's church where the truth is prevalent and the truth prevails. Not appealing to the flesh, not appealing to um, the nature of man, but appealing to the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us and give us wisdom to teach and walk in obedience to the Word of God. On some who are doubting, we are to show that mercy. Look at the next group of individuals that we are to uh, examine or to confront. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. We are to act on these individuals with a sense of forceful urgency. Forceful urgency. That the word mercy is not repeated here, as I've already mentioned, is until uh, the latter part of verse 23. We shouldn't conclude that mercy is not to be a component whenever it comes to dealing with those experiencing difficulties which resulted from heeding false doctrine. The fire that they are in here are the consequences of the wrong courses that they have begun to take because they doubted God's Word. Again, you remember, once you begin to doubt God's Word, it's like doubting a compass when you're lost. You began to walk in accord with your own feelings or your own thoughts that have not been taken captive to the obedience of God. And once you do that in the spiritual life, just like in the practical life, you get off course. When you're in the woods and you're lost and you have that compass, you know that that compass becomes the standard. You have to measure everything against that, what you think, what you feel, all the surroundings around you. And as you follow the compass, it will lead you to safety. But whenever you began to doubt that compass in the woods, and you began to think, man, it's pointing that way, and I know that's north, because the compass is saying, but I feel better when I'm going that way. You ever been lost in the woods or maybe even in the desert? Things that maybe you've never even seen before start looking just like the things you just saw. And things that you just saw may look different. And then at the same time, things that you just saw they are indeed the things you just saw because you're walking around in a circle, but you don't have the sense to realize it. That you're going in it. You're lost. You're lost. What do you need? You need a compass, right? You need a standard that says, this is the way. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't even matter what you're experiencing. That's the way out. That's the way out. So it is with the Word of God. It doesn't matter what you think apart from God's Word or what you feel. You need a compass. And whenever you get off track with the Word of God, you end up in trouble. And that's the idea as we saw previously 
last week in regard to those who are in the fire. They are experiencing the throes, if you will, of not having followed God's word. They got off course, and now their life starts getting all tangled up in different kinds of things. And those things can be sin. And they, they're on the wrong course. We are to save others, snatching them out of the fire. We are to save them, snatching them out of the fire. Now, this word saved can be translated and, and have different meanings depending on the context within which it appears. Most of the time, whenever it's used in the New Testament, it is in reference to spiritual salvation. And we can go through and look at multiple verses. We're not going to for the sake of time, but you understand that. Whenever we're talking about salvation or we're talking about being saved, most of the time it has reference to that. But other times it doesn't. As a matter of fact, it's been used in Jude already without reference to spiritual salvation. Back up in the text with me to verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after, and notice this, saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. There it's a reference to delivering the Israelites out of the nation of Egypt. So being saved can have different connotations with it. Um, there in verse 5, and in here in particular, I believe it has the idea of being saved out of the fire of the difficulties of following another course. And we kind of looked at that a few weeks ago there in some more specific ways. But a difficult course and the trials that have now been experienced because they are not walking in obedience to the Word of God. Go with me to Proverbs for a moment, chapter 2. Proverbs, chapter 2. Proverbs, chapter 2. And look down with me to, let's go to verse 9. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. This is the characteristic of the individual who's been following the Word of God. You can see that in the text preceding this. And they have wisdom in their lives. And notice that it says that they will be discerning individuals. They will be able to discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Notice this. It will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil. As we have said before, that's our own evil. And then it goes on from the man who speaks perverse things. That's the evil from evil men. Perverse things could even cover not only immoral things, but false doctrines. These individuals, their paths, according to verse 15, are crooked and devious. And then also in verse 16, to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, who leaves the companion of her youth. 
all of these things, wisdom from God's Word delivers us from, protects us from them. And whenever you get off the course of God's Word, and you're not walking by faith in His Word, but by feelings and by experiences, and on and on, and in particular false doctrine, which will lead you to do that, you get tangled up in all of these things. And it causes trial in our lives. Over and above the normal trials that we're going to experience in this world. Those become fiery trials. And here Jude says, snatching them out of the fire. Now, it could be also that he is referring to eternal fire. And in the sense that you as a Christian deliver the Word of God and the Gospel to someone who is lost, and they hear that, and the Holy Spirit opens their heart to receive the Word of God, they believe it, you've been instrumental in delivering the Gospel. You haven't saved them. God's done the saving, but you've brought the saving message. I believe the emphasis, though, has to do with those who were on course and now, through false doctrine, have deviated from the right course. We need to understand that false doctrine, according to Scripture, is never, ever idle. It's never idle. Like sin, false doctrine spreads to infect the entire loaf. That's its work. It's progressive. Jesus warned the apostles in Matthew chapter 16 of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In essence, he was warning the disciples of the spreading nature of false doctrine that the Pharisees and Sadducees taught, according to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 12. Speaking specifically of their teaching, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, and Galatians 5, 9, Paul wrote and said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. That's one of the characteristics of sin, and in particular false doctrine as well. It spreads. It's pervasive. And the believer is to act quickly in mercy with a sense of forceful urgency. In other words, you recognize the propensity of the presence of false doctrine. And you don't want to let it linger because it's never idle. It's Always working. Always working. You know, whenever you look at a lump of dough that's just sitting there, it's kind of like watching water boil. I don't know why, but a few weeks ago I was standing in the kitchen and I put on some water on the pot and I thought, how long could you endure this just standing here and watching? You know, it's difficult. I found myself thinking, you know, the little burner come on and it's electric, it goes off, then it comes back on. I'm thinking, they need to make this where that comes off and on more quickly. I want the water to boil. It just takes a long time. The point, though, is this. It didn't look like for a long time anything was happening there. 
it looked like it was staying the same. And then pretty soon on the bottom of that pot from the inside, I could see a tiny little bubble. And then it grew. And then there were other ones. And, you know, I know that sounds ridiculous, and I don't even know why I was doing it. But that's like the leaven. You watch a lump of dough, and you put it there. I've never done this, and I'm not going to. But if you put the lump of dough there, and you just started watching it, I don't know how long it takes dough to rise, too long, but it would almost look like it never, ever moved. But I am certain that if you took a pinch of that dough and put it under a magnifying glass or a microscope, you would be able to see that leaven working and turning and churning and just permeating even that little piece. And then you would know as you look back at that big piece that just looked like it was sitting there, that there were agents working within it, constantly causing it to expand bigger and bigger. That's the way false doctrine is. It's never, ever idle, beloved. It's never idle. And because of that, Jude uses an interesting word here, snatching them out of the fire. Forceful urgency. This particular Greek word translated snatching here is a very interesting word. It appears actually multiple times in the New Testament. And it has to do with removing something with just that forceful urgency. Forceful urgency. And I'll give you a few references. You can write these down and look at them later. Uh, and we'll look at a couple of them. Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. Chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 19. It's used in Matthew 13, 19. You're familiar with this one, where the devil comes and he snatches away the seed that was sown in the rocky places. Forceful urgency. It's used in John chapter 6, verse 15, John 10, verse 2, and 28, and 29. And you're familiar with those, that the sheep are in Christ's hand, and no one can snatch them away. And they are in the Father's hand, and no one, Jesus said, can snatch them from the Father's hand. The word appears again in Acts chapter 23, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 and verse 4. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 5. You're familiar with this one, Acts chapter 8, verse 39, that Philip, after he had spoken the gospel to the Ethiopian, the Holy Spirit snatched him away. And you're also familiar with 1 Thessalonians chapter 14, where the Bible uses the word rapture there to speak of the church, harpizo, to take them away forcefully. It speaks there in those verses of taking something, just as the word snatch means, and taking it away. The believer is then in mercy to stress the urgency of repentance from falsehood. 
you're not going to be able to grab that Christian and pull them out of the trouble. You would like to. They'll just go back to it. They need to be convinced by the Word of God and convinced with the sense of urgency that the path they are on, because they have doubted God's Word and have got onto the wrong course, that the danger is more and more imminent, and they must repent, not tomorrow, but now. Now. Why? Because false doctrine's never idle. It's never idle. It's growing. It's spreading. It's permeating. Should be something causing even fear in our own lives to make sure our minds are always informed by biblical truth. By biblical truth. We could look at example after example after example in Scripture of individuals who are Christians and got on the wrong course and inevitably because of that ended up in peril. And then God's truth came and rescued them. Mercy with fear and hatred of sin is the next one. Take a look with me to verse 23. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. We need to spend some time on this particular one. You notice that there is something joined with it here. We are to have mercy on some with fear. Not that they are with fear, but with regard to ourselves. And we are to have a specific attitude with regard to this particular group, and that is a hatred of sin. A hatred of sin. This verse and this exhortation, as we look to have mercy on some, speaks to the fact that we must consider our own selves and our own vulnerability to sin and ensure before we begin to address them that we ourselves are spiritual people. And by being spiritual people, I'm not talking about, you know, you walk around and you feel spiritual, but that you are measuring yourselves as well in the light of God's Word. Let me give you a text to look at that is consistent with this. Go with me again to the book of Galatians, if you will. Chapter 6, verse 1. It's a parallel text, if you would like, to hear in Jude, verse 23, and this particular group of people. Notice what he says. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, notice now the condition of the person, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Notice the condition there. You who are spiritual. Now, how do we know whether or not we're spiritual? Well, consistent in this context is, you know you're spiritual if the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life. Back up into the previous chapter with me. 
He sets before us the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit in the previous chapter. The works of the flesh, as he says, and you can start down with me in verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that, are, that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God." Those are the works of the flesh. And he contrasts that work of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit here in Galatians 5. And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, hum uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. You know you're spiritual if you see the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You know that you're spiritual if your life is lived out in the light of God's Word. And the reason why, he says, notice the text there, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Christians, you have the flesh too, right? We all do. And Satan doesn't always just say, oh boy, here comes someone to communicate the Word of God to them. I'm going to get scared and run. No, sometimes he says, we're going to assault the flesh in their lives too, or not assault it, but appeal to it. Appeal to it. We're out of time this morning. We're going to spend significant time, Lord willing, next week looking at this third category though. Because it brings in these two elements. Those who are caught up in the throes of the false doctrine insofar as that they have been carried off by it and maybe wrapped up in it. And then the call for the Christian to be examining their own life and ensuring that they are dealing with these individuals with, as the text says, fear. And on some have mercy with fear and then hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What kind of attitude should we have with regard to sin? Stand with me this morning. As recipients of mercy... We are to be people of mercy. But mercy doesn't overlook sin. Nope. Mercy doesn't excuse sin. That would all be contrary to it. We live in a day and an age in evangelicalism where mercy is really defined as just accepting of sin. But whenever you look into God's Word, mercy is really just exactly the opposite of it. It's dealing with the expulsion of sin, that the relief of, from misery because of sin might come to a person. It would be uncharacteristic of mercy to 
authorize or to coddle that which is causing the misery it's coming to relieve. Whenever mercy came to you, and it came to me by virtue of God's grace, it called us to repentance. And it does the same today. It calls for repentance. In the life of those who are apart from Christ and without Christ, to repent and to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Into the life of the Christian to repent from anything they know is contrary to the word of God and to call on Christ who is able to present us and make us stand before the throne of God as verse 24 says, holy. What a praise. What a blessing that is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. That you have made your people the recipients of it and cause us, Lord, to be the purveyors of it, to communicate it to others by communicating to them your word, the truth of the gospel of Christ, the call to pursue holiness in our lives to the praise of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn among many brethren. In Jesus' name, amen.